we do not have class next week uh, because the, it is the evening before Thanksgiving. Um, so what my plan is uh, tonight, we uh, last week began discussion of the problem of evil. Um, and we, we introduced the problem. I gave you one um, answer to the problem of evil that doesn't address what I said is really the issue, but it is a it is a legitimate response. Tonight, we started looking at several inadequate responses. Uh, tonight, we'll, we'll continue to look at some of these inadequate responses, uh, sketch them out a little bit more fully, and then consider the biblical response. Once we finish that, uh, we'll move on to the notes that you have in front of you uh, that were given to you tonight on the canon of Scripture. Um, and we'll explain when I get there why I think that's so significant uh, apologetically. Um, I do, I do, uh, no pun intended, I do apologize uh, for, the, for not getting the rest of the problem of evil notes to you and for the fact that your, your canon notes aren't in the same format. Uh, well, this last weekend I started uh, working delivery for FedEx and um, it's turning, it, 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 it seems to be about a 12, 13 hour a day job. Um, and so that's absorbing a great deal of my time, obviously, right now. Um, but never fear, I can throw your packages around with the best of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we talked about the problem of evil, uh, that an all-good, all-powerful God should seemingly be able to and desire to eliminate all evil. Uh, and, and again, that evil can be in two senses. I don't think we talked about this last night, but this is a distinction worth making. There is moral evil, and then there's evil in the sense of calamity, right? So moral evil would be someone murders someone else. Uh, evil of calamity would be cancer. Does make sense? And, and the argument works either way. Why, if there's a, a holy, good, holy, powerful God, is there sin in the world? Or why, if there's a holy, powerful, holy, good God, uh, is there suffering in the world? So, we started to look at, at some possible answers to that. The first one that I suggested, from a presuppositional point of view, does anyone, does anyone remember what, what is the question that you ask the unbeliever when he says, if there's a God, why is all, there all this evil? What question can you ask him? On your worldview, what evil? Right? Given your worldview, is it, is it uh, some sort of tragic suffering when a lion eats a gazelle? And the answer is no, it's meaningless. And if we're, if we're essentially the same thing as, as a gazelle or as a lion, uh, human suffering is equally meaningless. It just doesn't, it literally, it doesn't mean anything. There's no significance to it whatsoever. Um, and so when the atheist comes to you and says, God can't exist because there's all this evil in the world, it is legitimate to turn the question back on him and say, given your assumptions, there's no such thing as evil. Now, he said that really doesn't completely answer what he's doing, because in his best moments, uh, what he's trying to do is what we call an internal critique of Christianity. Um, just like I do an internal critique of the uh, atheist worldview. I go over and I stand on his presuppositions for a period of time and show that they reduce to absurdity. The unbeliever is trying to do the same thing to Christianity. He comes over on my worldview. And on my worldview, is there evil? Does evil exist in my world? Well, it does. And he's coming over on my worldview and saying, see, your worldview is self-contradictory. Your worldview, Mr. Christian, reduces to absurdity because your sort of God can't coexist with evil. So... Uh, we said last week, as we started examining some answers, some potential answers to the problem of evil, and from the perspective of an internal critique, that there's two things our, pro our solution to the problem of evil had better not say. Okay, two things that we better not say when 
Tales of Evil. Does anyone remember either of them? Okay, evil doesn't exist is, is one of the one of the possible answers, and we said we said that's a deficient answer, but that's not exactly what I was looking for. The two things that our answer to the problem of evil can't say is that evil is necessary, or that God is less than all powerful. Those are the persistent temptations in, in formulating our our defense of God. And the technical term for this, if you if you're interested in technical terms. It's called a theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. Uh, it comes from two Greek words, theos, you're all familiar with, God. And the, um, uh, the, the, the root of the term righteousness, um, if you're familiar with English poetry at all, um, Milton opens Paradise Lost talking about justifying the ways of God to man. That's what a theodicy does. It's trying to justify God, to show that God is, in fact, righteous. So we're we're trying to justify God. We're trying to defend God's righteousness. Uh, We can't do so at the price of saying that God is not powerful or that evil is necessary, right? If evil is necessary, we said the consequence of that is that we're in in a... uh, uh, Eastern religion sort of yin-yang universe. Uh, and that is not the Christian answer. We, we can't go there uh, at the very least because it's not Christian. Okay. So we started looking at uh, possible answers. We, we, showed, uh, or we, we argued that the Bible does not present evil as unreal, and, and, and we looked at the philosophical basis for that. Um, so let's introduce uh, a, a couple other arguments. That God is weak. Okay, and we, we inter- briefly touched on this last week. Uh, Rabbi Kushner, uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? That was his famous book. And his argument is that God doesn't want them to happen any more than you do, but he can't stop it. Okay, And that is the God is weak sort of position. Um, and again, this is, this is just thoroughly not compatible um, with, with scripture. Uh, we, we considered last week um, the passage um, in Acts chapter 2. Okay, you remember this? Acts chapter 2 last week. We looked at Peter preaching uh, at Pentecost, and he, he preaches to the Jews, and he says that, that God purposed and you with wicked hands crucified the Lord of glory. Okay? And, and my argument last week was that if we're going to have the debate, what is the most evil act that has ever occurred in human history, there are only two legitimate biblical candidates, and that's going to be the fall or the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, and I, I don't want to get into that particular debate here, but, but when we talk about the crucifixion of Christ, Peter says directly, this is something God planned. It wasn't something that uh, God, it, it just slipped past God's attention. How did that happen? Um, we cannot then, uh, in, by, by extension of that principle, object to the idea that even the evil that happens in this world is part of God's plan. Now, I'm going to say, I'll give you a preview where I'm going. Does that completely make sense? Do I completely understand that? And my answer is no. Let me give you another preview of where we're going. If I did completely understand, God wouldn't be God. Okay? Um, but what I can't do is, is try to save God by making those things outside his control. Um, at least... For, for a number of biblical reasons, but, but at least for the reason that, and I want you to think about this, we've been saying during this whole class that I can know things because God has known them first by declaring them to be that way, right? We talked about my car being in the parking lot, and God knowing my car is in the parking lot actually causes my car to be in the parking lot. If there are things 
that, that happen, that are evil, that God is not in control of, we've lost our principle of knowing. Does that, do you see how that follows? And I'm in the same boat that the, the unbeliever is in. Um, so, so the idea of God being weak or the open theist position that God doesn't know the future, right? That God is learning. Um, all of these are ultimately, from a Christian perspective, heretical answers to the, to the, um, to the problem of evil. They're well-intentioned. You'll hear well-meaning people say this, right? Someone is suffering. And, and, and a well-meaning Christian person will say, you know, God didn't plan this. Well, Spurgeon said one time, Spurgeon suffered with all sorts of uh, physical ailments, uh, significant physical ailments, to the point that I believe every year he spent a couple of months away from his congregation in southern France uh, on doctor's orders just for health reasons, uh, to get out of London and to get out of the pollution of London and go away to a, essentially a beach. <laughs> Tough doctor's orders, right? But, but Spurgeon said... If someone were to tell me that my physical problems were not ordained by God, I would be frightened, right? Because then God is not in control of these things. They are not measured out by the hand of a kind and loving God. And though we may not understand why a kind and loving God would measure them out, it is, it is no consolation, it is no comfort to think that God isn't in control. Um, another uh, possible answer. Another possible answer uh, to the problem of evil. The best of all possible worlds defense. Okay, this is the best of all possible worlds. Okay, let me. I'll explain what I mean by that. But the answer, the 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 argument is this is the best of all possible worlds. Let's unpack that again. Uh, this this argument is most closely associated with the. I believe either a German or Austrian philosopher named Leibniz, L-E-I-B-N-I-Z, uh, Leibniz. Here's, here's the argument. We considered a variant of this uh, earlier. We said God is perfect, right? We, we clearly believe that God is perfect. If God is perfect, we would expect that God always does the most perfect thing. Because if we have a perfect being who does something less than perfect, what do we conclude about the perfect being? He's less than perfect, right? Uh, so that seems logical. So Leibniz says, if God is perfect, and this is the world that he has created, this must be the best possible world that God could create. Does that, does that make sense? Um... Do you sense any problems or tensions in what Leibniz is saying here? Well, I think he was logic that there's a more perfect world. Okay, the first the first objection to what Leibniz says is certainly we can think of a more perfect world than this, even from within a Christian perspective. Give me two examples from a Christian perspective of a better world than this one. How about the world before the fall and the world after the redemption of all things? Right? And so we can so let me clarify. The answer to that one is to clarify what Leibniz means by world. He's not talking about the state of affairs right now as the best things are going to be. He's talking about the world in its entirety, stretched through time. This course of events is the best possible course of events that God could have created. Is that kind of clarify what he... So, in order to do the whole thing that God wanted to do, this is part of what God had to do to do what he wanted to do. That kind of thing. Okay? So, that is that is a, a very common objection. It's a legitimate objection, but I think it, it, this, it's clarified when we understand fully what Leibniz means by world. Can you think of another possible objection? I'll give you a hint. It's one of the two things that... Uh, one of the two answers we can't have to the problem of evil. What does Leibniz seem to do when he says this is the best of all possible worlds? 
So, so what? Evil's necessary, right? That, do you see how that follows from there? That that if God is going to create the best possible world, He has to create evil, and so evil takes on some sort of metaphysical necessity, and that's a problem. Now, make things more difficult, right? Because they were they were so easy already. What we're going to see with a lot of these answers to the problem of evil is that they have a grain of truth in them, right? They're, they're saying something that's true, but if you take them too far, you're going to say something false. I am comfortable with the idea that what Leibniz says, this course of events is the course of events that a perfect God has ordained. Therefore, I, I can use, in a certain manner of speaking, this is the best of all possible worlds. But I have to reject the conclusion that that seems to entail that evil is necessary. Okay? I, so I think this is a deficient argument. I don't think it's entirely wrong-headed, but I think it's deficient. I think it leads us in a direction we don't want to follow all the way. All right, um, here's a big one. Um, free will. Why, why does evil exist? Because God gave people free will. Okay? This, is, this is probably, among Christians, the most common... Uh, it's, in fact, it's called the free will defense. That's FWD. You'll see it. It doesn't stand for four-wheel drive. Uh, free will defense. Um, and you'll see this in discussions. The argument goes something like this. God didn't create evil. God created people with free will, and they chose evil. So God isn't responsible for evil. Okay. Um, so let's look, on the, let's look on the pluses of this. What does, this, what does this say that is true? The fr what, what in the free will defense is true? We, we choose things, right? And in fact, sometimes we choose evil, okay? And who is responsible for the evil that we do? We are. Who is not responsible for the evil we do? God, okay? So that's the plus side of the argument. Let's look at the negatives very quickly. The idea of free will in the free will defense is what we call, here's, here's another term for you, but it's a, it's, it's a term you're familiar with in another context. I'm going to bring it into this one. Libertarian free will, okay? Most often we hear, as Americans, when we hear libertarian, most of the time we think in terms of politics, but but philosophy as a term, libertarian free will. If you want to get the really fancy philosophy word, contra-cultural free will, but you don't need to know. Right. Libertarian free will. The idea of libertarian free will is this. For any decision that is really free, I could have done the other. Does that make sense? In other words, if I freely chose to mow the lawn, it has to have been true that I could have done the other. I could have chosen not to. If I couldn't have chosen not to mow the lawn, then my choice to mow the lawn really wasn't free. Okay? That's the idea of counter-causal free will, libertarian free will. Libertarian free will is not compatible with the Christian God. All right, let me, and let me explain this quickly, why that's, why that's the case. I have my hand out in front of me. I could move it either to the left or to the right right now. So here's a question for you. Is it possible that God could drop a scroll out of heaven that says which direction I'm about to move my hand? Can't, is God capable of that? Why is God capable of that? Well, but, but specifically, why is God capable of telling me which direction I'm about to move my hand? Because he already knows. Okay? So here's the question. God drops the scroll out of heaven that says, I'm going to move my hand to the right. Can I move it to the left? And the answer is, no, I can't. God knows I'm going to move it to the right. Now here's the biblical, here's the biblical conundrum. When I move my hand to the right, is it my decision? And the biblical answer is, Yes. Am I responsible if someone's face happens to be just to the right of my hand? Am I responsible for what I've done? 
Yes. Do I get that? No. Okay. Quickly. I, I don't want to camp here, but I, I do want to make this point. It is important. We have to, Romans 9. We may have looked here already, but I th in fact, I think we have, but I want to go back here. We, we have to remember all the time, and this is, this is going to be very important for us, as you, as you seek to put into practice some of the things we've discussed in the class. As Christian apologists, we are defending Christian theology, right? That seems like a duh, but let's, you know, okay, it's there. As Christian apologists, we're defending Christian, uh, Christian theology, which means that the best and most thorough theologian is going to be the best and most thorough apologist. Does that make sense? It is going to be very difficult to defend the Christian faith if you don't know the content of the Christian faith. So, so if you say, you know, I'm interested in apologetics, I want to be ready to have an answer, for the, 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 your primary goal shouldn't be to read books on apologetics. That's good. I, I mean, I like books on apologetics. I hope to write some books on apologetics, and I want you to buy them and read them. Um, I, I like apologetics, but your primary task as an apologist is to saturate yourself in theology, because you want to be able to give fully Christian answers to challenges to the Christian faith. All right. So Romans nine. Like I said, I think we've looked at this before. But um, uh, look, look at verse fourteen. What shall we say then? Uh, Paul has gone through a series of passages where he, he talks about God choosing, for instance, Jacob and rejecting Esau, and, and God choosing this person and reject and hardening Pharaoh, and, and, and back and forth. And Paul asks the question, what shall we say? What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, and here is God's declaration, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You see that God has completely free will. He's bound only by his own character. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. Do you feel the weight of those words? Why did God create Pharaoh? And, and, and God's answer is to crush him. Okay? Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Alright? What, what is our objection at this point? Say it in the words of our culture. Uh, three words. One of them is a contraction. That's not fair. Right? That's exactly what Paul says here. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Okay, this is, this is the point in Scripture where we're hoping that Paul solves it for us, right? This is the big mystery. How is it that God is sovereign and that man is responsible? And look at Paul's answer. But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Now, that's not a very satisfying intellectual answer, is it? You know, it's not like Paul has unlocked for us the mystery of theology here. But he has told us something very important. We have limits. Right? And there are lines that we are not allowed to cross. We are not allowed to blame God for our evil. The problem with the free will defense is not only does it posit an unbiblical kind of free will, okay? The Bible does teach that we make decisions and that we are responsible for our decisions, but it doesn't teach libertarian free will, right? Libertarian free will is only possible if you deny the omniscience of God, right? If God can't drop the scroll from the sky because he doesn't know which way my hand's going to go, then I can have libertarian free will. But that kind of God is not the Christian God. All right. 
So the free will defense is not only a problem because it denies the biblical kind of God, it's also a problem because it still doesn't get gotten off the hook. Right? If, let, let, let's, uh, let's take this in the, in the most fully Christian sense that I can. Let, let's, instead of being an open theist and denying that God knows the future, okay, that's an open theism, God doesn't know the future. That's the idea of open theism. Okay, they're, they're consistent with libertarian free will. I think they're inconsistent with biblical Christianity. Okay, but let's not go that far. Let's just try to say God is omniscient, but man has total free will. Okay, and that's going to create all kinds of weird tensions for us, but let's pretend we could hold that position. If God is omniscient and he creates people with free will that he knows will sin, is God off the hook in terms of our understanding of God, our understanding in, in other words, what the free will defense is trying to do is get God off the hook, right? Because they're trying to say, God isn't responsible, people are responsible. But if an all-powerful God creates people who he knows are going to sin, doesn't it seem like he's still culpable? Does that, does that make sense? Moving God back a level doesn't seem to solve the problem of evil. I think this is a serious weakness in the free will defense. Um, not only is the free will defense in its strong form very unbiblical, but I think in its weak form it doesn't really accomplish much. Does that, does that make sense? Now again, on, on the positive side, we, we do affirm man is responsible for evil and God isn't. And I don't understand that. What yeah. if we just... I just don't say we know he's sovereign, so he's in control. Yeah. Yeah, and it... it we, we are going to come to the conclusion. There's mystery here. But it's good, to, it's good to talk our way through some of these other answers because for, for a number of reasons. One, you'll hear others use them. Two, parts of them are tempting for us. And it's good, not to, it's good to know where, they're, they're, where I can safely put my foot down and where if I put my foot down, I, you know, to quote Edward's uh, famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, their foot shall slip in due time, right? There's some arguments that my foot will slip in due time, and I don't want to put my foot there. So back to the discussion about you sticking your hand out and moving it right, right, and God knowing that you're going to do the right. The what I've talked to other Christians about with that is they they believe that um, I think you said like the Calvinist might even like a hyper Calvinist might say, "What well, God caused you to move your hand to the right?" Sure. Does that make sense? In other words, does God take up space? Right. 
And the answer is no. God doesn't take up space. So to speak of us being inside of God, that's a metaphor of some sort. And I don't know that I exactly get what you mean by it. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to be hard. No, um, no. No. It's trying to get to the point that, that God is beyond evil. I mean, he's greater sure. than evil, right? Sure, exactly. That's and that's the, that's the that's point that we don't have a dualist universe. We don't have a yin-yang universe. God is beyond evil. He's greater than it all. I yes. mean, he is all-powerful, all-great. Yes. And so evil is not an issue, is my point. He had an answer for it anyway. Yes. And we're, so that's, my point is, even with Satan, you create, he knows the greatest angel that he could ever create. Right of creation, I would say, maybe they sure, sure, right, would fall, right. Yet he still chose to create it, right. And 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 you can see very quickly. Right. So you're you're right. You're right on the cusp of Leibniz's best of all possible worlds. You see that? As soon as we acknowledge God's goodness and His absolute sovereignty, we're right there. With and, and like I said, there's a lot that Leibniz says with best of all possible worlds that I go, yeah, I think that's true. I just want to be careful that I don't impute moral guilt to God. I, I think you're exactly on the right track in what you're saying. I think you're exactly on the right track. All right, we must we must press on. Uh, here's another here's another answer to the problem of evil that I think is maybe good but insufficient. Evil builds character. Okay, this is like the really strong form of vegetables build character kind of thing, you know. Mom, I don't want to eat the Brussels sprouts. Eat them anyway. They build character, son. You know, that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the argument is, um, well, here's the reality. Look at Romans 5. It, it's always best to look at the Bible. I'll show you, show you one of the most astounding verses I think in Scripture. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I love the book of Romans, if you haven't picked up on that. I think, I think you can't do better as a Christian than to read and read and reread and reread the book of Romans to understand what the Bible is about. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a glorious thing, right? That we have peace with God through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Right? And we understand that, that. That one day I rejoice in the hope, and we could, we could debate about how we're taking glory of God there, whether it means that we're going to be glorified or rejoice to see God's glory shown or something like that. But, but I, I rejoice in the hope that I have, the confidence that I have in the, in the future restoration of all things. Look at verse uh, 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice what? In our, in our suffering. You don't expect that in this context, do you? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Right? That very hope that we rejoiced in two verses ago is produced by our suffering. Why do we have hope? Because this life is suffering. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. We know it's temporary where the unbeliever does it. Right. And, and, and there is, but, there's, but there's a very real sense. It's not like it, it goes away. Right? It's not like the broken bone doesn't hurt anymore. It still hurts. And, and we, in, in, a, in a, a, a more real sense than the picture Paul paints for us, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that all of creation groans, longing for the redemption that's found in Christ. There's a, we have that same groaning, right? That, that you know, there's a, there are mornings you get up and your back tells you, we have not yet reached where we ought to be, right? Or, you know, right now, uh, trying to deliver packages for FedEx, uh, my, my eyesight is not as good as it ought to be. I've had laser surgery 
and I had eight years of glorious non-glasses existence. But my eyes deteriorated again. I have glasses, and even these glasses right now are not strong enough to see the addresses the way I'd like to be able to see them. And, and, and all of these things remind us. You have a heartbreak in your family. These things remind us that, that it's not the way we ought to be. And so these, the, the suffering produces character and perseverance and hope. Okay. So, why does evil exist? Well, one of the reasons is to build character. Is that a biblical reason for uh, evil? And the answer is yes. Again, the only possible danger, and, and, and what we're going to see, and I want you to, this is, this is fairly obvious once you, once you see it, anything you say, oh, this is the reason for evil, what almost immediately is the objection? If this is the reason that evil exists, it almost immediately makes evil necessary, right? You see how that follows hard on the heels of saying, Evil exists because, the, the next question is, well, could evil not exist? Right? And so, I, I'm happy with this one. Evil builds character, right? Suffering builds character. And even moral evil builds character. In the sense, other people sin against me. Is that, have you ever grown in your Christianity because someone sinned against you? Have you ever... by the repentance granted you from your own sin, grown in Christ-likeness. You've sinned, and the Spirit sends conviction through a sermon, through a scripture text, through the work of the Spirit, and you grow in your Christ-likeness. Right? So, evil builds character. I'm happy with that. I think that's true. Um, I still don't want to say that, that makes evil necessary. But I think that's a, that's a legitimate answer. It's one I think it's worthwhile to bring up to the unbeliever. Um, here's uh, seven. Evil is necessary for a stable environment. Evil is necessary um, that the sort of world that God created where there's good and whatever, that, that good needs there to be evil, to be stable. Well, what, what are we immediately? Evil's necessary, yin-yang kind of thing. Um, I, I could come up with a couple examples of that, but I don't want to pursue that one uh, greatly. Um, we could say, all right. Here's a here, here's uh, one final one final deficient argument or deficient explanation for evil is that God is above. Um, If, if I were to say, uh, the unbeliever says, um, how can it, with all this evil, your God can't exist. And I say, God is so far above our understanding that uh, he can't be held to any standard of good and evil. No, God, you can't judge God by any standard of good and evil. What's the problem with that? Do you see any potential problem with that? Probably the first feedback to that would be so busy. I, th I think that's a legitimate. I think that's a legitimate response. Yeah, very much. More than likely, that's what most people <laughs> who are unbelievers would. That's what they would think. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. I, I think that the heart of the problem is that. If as a Christian I say God can't be held to any standard of good and evil, essentially what I've said is that God's revelation of himself as having certain character qualities doesn't mean anything. Does that make sense? It's, it's one thing for me to say, and I'm going to say, I don't comprehend completely God's relationship to these things. It's another thing for me to say, God is so transcendent that um, my, our knowledge of him doesn't mean anything. Okay, I can't go that far. I can't, that's, that's Kantian, that's not Christian. All right. All right. Um, 
Well, let's, let's very quickly then consider a biblical answer. A biblical answer to the problem of Egypt. Here's the first thing we have to keep in mind. When the unbeliever performs an internal critique, he's on, and this is going to be technical, heavy philosophical language, he's on my playground. <laughs> right? He's on my playground at that point. The unbeliever, right? We've already, we've already uh, talked about the problem of evil on the unbeliever's playground, right? On the unbeliever's playground, what's our answer to the problem of evil? What evil? Right? On the unbeliever's playground, uh, the bully can kick the little kid and it doesn't matter. Right? The unbeliever says, oh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I, I'm talking about, on your worldview, God has said certain things are wrong, and yet those things happen. How do you have an answer for that? Okay, well, as soon as we've made that concession, I'm allowed to construct a thoroughly Christian theology of all of these things. And so I can bring up Bible verses, I can bring up the mystery of God, and I want you to get this point. The unbeliever has no right to object anymore. Does that make sense? He's on my playground. And, and he's said as much, right? He's come over, and what I'm doing is saying, as a Christian now, here's how I deal with these things. Here are the truths, and one of the big truths, we've already hinted at that, one of the big truths that I have to say right up front is that God is, is not so simple that I can understand him, right? I, I've heard the comment before about uh, when, when people study the human brain, uh, the, the joke is, and I think, it's, I think it's wonderful, that if the uh, brain were simple enough that we could understand it, it would be so simple that we couldn't, right? Um, and, and I think that I think that's very it's, it's witty, right? It's witty. Um, the reality is we're creation, God's creator, God's infinite, and we're finite. And the reality is you can't cram infinity into finitude and expect it to fit, right? It, 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 the, the picture would be like we're two-dimensional people. Let's say we're all totally flat, completely. We're just two-dimensional, you know. But, but there's, a, there's a book that tells us of spheres and cubes and, and cones, right? Now, in a two-dimensional world, we could describe those things. We could describe depth. Do, does depth mean anything in a two-dimensional world? And the answer is no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And if we were purely two-dimensional beings, and, and, and religion was th the third dimension, it would be a, a paradox, an enigma, right? It would, it, would, it would transcend our experience and our understanding. Does it make the third dimension unreal? No. It just means two-dimensional things are limited, right? We are limited. Okay. We do well to highlight the arrogance of atheism, which suggests that my mind is the measure of all things. You, you see the arrogance of that? The, 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 the atheist is acting like the two-dimensional square, saying, if it has a third dimension, it's impossible. That's the atheist. Um, because it, if, it, if, it, if I don't get it, it can't be. Well, who are you to say you're the judge of what can and can't be by your puny mind? Or by my puny mind, right? God transcends... And that's... Okay, this isn't just a cop-out. This is the central claim of the Christian faith, right? God's God, and I'm not. So it's not like I'm, I'm making something up to answer a difficult question that the, unbeliever, that the unbeliever is asking me. The very heart of my Christian faith is that there is a creator and there is a creature, and, and sin always involves mixing the two. Right? I'm not making new stuff up 
to answer the problem of evil when I claim that God transcends my understanding. I'm saying something. When you're on my playground, you play by my rules. One of my rules is that God's God and I'm not. Okay? You may think that's a cop-out, and I understand why you think that's a cop-out, and I'm talking to the unbeliever hypothetically here. I understand, Mr. Unbeliever, why you think that's a cop-out, because you refuse to bend the knee to God. Right? You think it's a cop-out to say um, that, that God transcends my understanding because you refuse to let anything transcend your understanding. So, I, I, I don't expect, here's, here, and this, so this is maybe the second important point, I don't expect the unbeliever to, to accept wholeheartedly my explanation. Unless what? He's converted. Right? All I'm doing is showing that the Christian worldview doesn't fall apart when there is evil. Okay? I don't have to, I don't have to prove it to him on, on his worldview. All I do on his worldview is say, what evil? Okay? So we go back to that again. But on my worldview... I have the resources to answer it. And my biggest resource is God is God, I'm not. Right? We've looked at, at bits and pieces of other things that I can say too, right? God does have a plan in all of this. Um, I, I think another important biblical part of my answer, what does God love more than anything else? God. Right? Um, and I'm stealing this, I think, pretty liberally from John Piper. But, but uh, Piper has said, uh, God loves God more than he loves anything else. If God loved something else more than he loved God, what would God be? Well, what do we call it when you love something more than you love God? What is that thing? An idol. If God loved me more than God loves God, God would be an idolater. Why is it why is it okay for God to be self-centered and for me not to be? Why is it why is it the essence of holiness for God to be self-centered and the essence of depravity for me to be self-centered? Because God's God and we're not, right? God's worthy of it. In fact, God is supremely worthy of it, so much so that, that the essence of sin is prizing something other than God. Right? What God is most concerned about is his own name. We saw all those verses, right? That God does this for his namesake. He does that for his namesake. He redeems us for his namesake. <clears throat> if redemption was not about the glory of God. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross would be meaningless. For this reason, if God were all about love and redemption, would Christ have to die? No. God could just save people. But see, but see sin is about devaluing God's name. And God can't take that lightly. And you know how... Serious God takes that? God takes that so seriously that his son was incarnated and died. So that my favorite verse in Romans, Romans chapter 3, that God might be just and the justifier. And that is, I think, the richest verse in all, that is the gospel right there. That God is just and the justifier. God is uppermost in his own affection. Which means that the storyline of Scripture is not about God doing everything for me. Right? Most people's objection to God with the problem of evil assumes that God owes us something. Right? Um, the, the objection is how could, how could this happen? How could a good God do X? Um, Kushner's book, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? <clears throat> the title of that book is an offense to God, right? Because what does it assume? That people are good and that they deserve things. And what does scripture teach about all people? That they're evil 
And what do they deserve? Death and hell. Okay? Do you see how the whole problem, the problem of evil that the unbeliever formulates only works on his worldview? Even then, it's got some serious problems. Once you come over to my worldview and you recognize that God transcends my understanding, that God is uppermost in his own affections, and that God is working all things for his own glory, I think you have a very strong theological foundation to say, I don't know entirely why things had to be this way. But God has decided that for his own namesake, for his glory, that, that this kind of world, a world in which he has permitted evil to exist so that he glorifies his justice and his mercy at the same time, he has decided that that kind of world brings him glory. Now, I don't get that. I don't understand it entirely. You know, why? And, and, you know, some people will say, God had to create people with a free will because God didn't want robots serving him. And so we had to have free will so that people would love him. Let me ask you something. Does Jesus love the Father? Does the Son love the Father? Is the Son capable of not loving the Father? No. Is his love false? or robotic, then? When we're glorified, will we be able to sin? Is our obedience real? Do I get that? No. But, I don't need a free will for my love or my obedience to be real. Okay? Jesus, the angels, the unfallen angels, me, me in, in glory, all of us disprove that. So, so I can't say that evil is necessary for any of these things, but God has deemed it the best means to glorify himself. That, that is my biblical framework for answering the problem of evil. Again, I don't expect the unbeliever to like it unless he converts. But what I'm showing is the Christian worldview has within it the resources to, to offer an explanation. Any thoughts or questions on that? Lots of stuff, lots of information. All right, very, very quickly. Uh, apologetics in the canon, then. Apologetics in the canon. You have there a full paper. I, I presented this a uh, few few years ago now uh, at a seminary in Pennsylvania, a conference they were having. Um, you can actually just read through this whole thing. We'll, we'll probably discuss it again in, in a couple of weeks when we come back. <coughs> Let me, let me tell you why I've done what I've done here. I mentioned, I think, uh, early in the class, I asked you if any of you had seen the movie or read the book, The Da Vinci Code. Uh, and, and where Christians got all up in arms about that book is that, if you're familiar with it at all, uh, the, the, the um, claim is that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and had a daughter, and, and the, the bloodline of Jesus is in the French kings of, of, you know, the Merovingian line or something like that. Um, Dan Brown is a hack of an author. Um, I, I told you about this, this uh, Doug Wilson, Christopher Hitchens movie, and, and, and Hitchens at one point says something about the Left Behind series, I think you could say about Dan Brown, that, uh, uh, that you, you don't read Dan Brown either for information or for pleasure. <laughs> Right? It doesn't provide either. Um, anyway, so Brown says all this about Jesus, and I'm not going to get into that particular claim. I, I will suggest that if we take the humanity of Christ seriously, that Jesus is fully human, some of the objections that are raised to that are not theologically good. Uh, in other words, we never want to we never want to defend Jesus' deity to the point of denying his humanity. That's just as heretical and leaves us without a savior. Okay. I don't want to get into that. I think the most important claim that Dan Brown makes, the most uh, uh, wide-reaching, uh, the one that's going to make things difficult for us, is not about Jesus marrying and having a daughter. It's this. Dan Brown argues that our modern collection of books in our Bible, particularly our New Testament, um, is the product of 
Constantine, uh, and, and, and various you know, theologians that were brought together at a certain point in time that had a certain agenda. And, and, and the argument is there were dozens and dozens of books that were written uh, that, were, that were about Jesus uh, in, in that time. And that these guys got together and they picked the ones that were called the canon of Scripture. Um, and they did it because they were egotistical men and they wanted to advance the purposes of a patriarchal hierarchy and, and you know, a certain view of orthodoxy and whatever. And these books are no more true than the books that got rejected. It's all political. Okay? Have you ever run across anyone like this? Why should we trust the Bible? You know, you're, you're, you're talking to someone about Christianity, and they say something, and you say, well, actually the Bible says, and they go, well, we all know we can't really, you can't really trust it. I mean, it's been translated all these times, and, and this and that, and all, all this other nonsense and garbage. But they believe it, okay? I don't want to dismiss it just as nonsense and garbage. They, they have problems with the Bible. Can we trust that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, how do we answer that? Um, and, and, and let me suggest two ditches that we can fall in, and we'll talk about this more in two weeks. Ditch number one is, I know it's the Bible because I just feel it in my heart. Okay, what's the problem with that? Some people feel it in their heart when they read Martin Luther King Jr. and they want to add that to the scripture. Okay? And I'm not making that up. There, there were... There was a certain group that said uh, Luther, or Martin Luther King's uh, letter from, a Birmingham, from the Birmingham prison, a fairly famous document that he wrote, uh, should be added to the Bible. Okay. So some people feel it in their heart. And again, the Mormons say the same thing. If you ever talk to a Mormon and you say, why should I believe the Book of Mormon? They would say, well, take it and read it, and you'll feel the burning in, in your chest. Heartburn, something like that. Um, but but they'll, they'll say that this is how you know that this is the Word of God. Okay, It's purely, here's the problem, purely subjective. Right. The other ditch to which we can fall is to say, how do I know it's the Word of God? Well, the Council of Nicaea said so, amen. Right? The bishops got together and they called these books the Word of God. What's the problem with that? Welcome to the Catholic Church, my friend. Right? How, why are you going to accept what the Council of Nicaea said and not what the Vatican II said in 1950? Does that make sense? So here we have great objectivity. I know it's the Word of God because of this objective fact. But if you go over here, you have swum the Tiber, right? You've come home to Rome. Amen. All right? And, 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 and trust me, this is something I've done a lot of study in, um, Catholic apologetics and stuff. I, I don't know how, how many of you were, were baptized in the Catholic Church. I was, okay, as well. Um, so that's, this is a very serious claim over here. It provides certainty, doesn't it? How do I know? Well, it, it, the Church has said it. It is so. Right? There's certainty. Of the sort. We'll talk about that. Over here, there's a sort of certainty, but it's just purely internal to me. And and if I and if you say, well, you know what? I love what Paul says about justification by faith alone. What James says about justification, showing your faith by your works, that doesn't sound like it fits with Paul. I'm going to toss out James because I just don't feel it in my heart when I read James. Frankly, I don't necessarily feel it in my heart when I read Second Chronicles, right? And this guy begat this guy, and there were this thousands of people in the tribe of Nehi. <laughs> what? I don't always feel that in my heart, right? But I'm not going to take it out of the canon. So we need to talk about how we're going to defend the canon of Scripture from the perspective of a Christian worldview. Uh, feel free to read through those notes. Uh, maybe uh, help formulate, you know, if you want to uh, write some questions in the margins and stuff like that, we may have a, a more profitable back and forth when we come back in a couple weeks. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Let me leave you with one preaching statement here. This isn't, this isn't class, but it's, I, think it's, I think it's Christian. 
I'm going to encourage you to think of Thanksgiving in a way that is that is thoroughly Christian. Uh, what that means, um, <clears throat> there are often that we come to Thanksgiving, and the only difference between the Christian and the unbeliever, they, they're thankful for the same things, but the Christian is thankful that God gave them to them. Right? I, I'm thankful that I have a new car that God gave to me. Now, I don't think it's wrong to be thankful for a new car. I don't think it's wrong to be thankful for family and for all these things. Let me encourage you to do this. Um, Be thankful. Try, Try to root your thanksgiving in what God has promised you. What? So, one of the things God has promised is that he will build his church. And some of you have been given material, you've been given a house that you use for the advancement of the local church. Right? And and, and for you to say, I praise God that he's given me this house that he is using for, for his glory. You see, that's a very Christian that, that's rooted in a Christian worldview. It's just not tagging God on to the same things that the unbelievers... It, it is. Are unbelievers thankful for their homes? Yes. But are they thankful for their homes that advance the church? No. That's a Christian thing. I, I would encourage you to be thankful for your families and for, for all the things that God has granted. But, but look for things that God has said He's going to do. And be thankful that he's doing this. And praise him for that. And and be Christian in your thanksgiving. Thank you for coming.